I wrote down a list of every single local marketplace, peer-to-peer marketplace. And so I used all of them. And I don't mean like I signed up and used them. I mean, I, I signed up and became a, a supplier. So I listed a spare bedroom on Airbnb. I drove for Uber. I drove for Lyft. I delivered food for Postmates. I delivered food for DoorDash. I walked dogs on WAG and Rover. I cleaned homes on HomeJoy. I uh, signed up on Angie's List and did every service they could. I signed up for TaskRabbit and went and hung people's... Uh, flat panel TVs that they had just bought, put their Ikea furniture together. I used all of these services and like I would spend a month on every one of them. Welcome to SaaS Origin Stories. Tune in to hear authentic conversations with founders as they share stories from the earlier days of their SaaS startups. We'll cover painful challenges, early wins, and actionable takeaways. You'll hear firsthand the do's and don'ts of building and growing a SaaS as well as inspirational stories to fuel you on your own SaaS journey. Here is your host, Phil Alves. Okay, today I have Brian from Green Paul here in the show. Brian, thanks for coming over. Thank you so much for having me on. It's great to be here. Awesome. So the first question I like to ask people is, just tell us a little bit of your company and what problem does it solve? Yeah, it's a great question. I like the way you frame it. Because that's where you want to start when you're starting a company. You got to solve a problem. That's the mistake that we made in the early days and I see a lot of founders make. GreenPal is, is an app that works like Uber, but for lawn mowing services. So if you're a homeowner and you've got super tall grass, maybe you've called around on Craigslist or Facebook or Yelp and you can't get anybody to call you back. You can't even get anybody to show up to mow your yard. And so you download GreenPal, pop your address in. And somebody comes out and does the chore for you. You don't have to call around hassling people anymore. You can just push a button and it just happens like magic. And GreenPal is a 10-year overnight success. I've been at this for a decade. And now GreenPal is nationwide in the United States with over 300,000 people using the app, 32,000 lawn care services using the app, and doing multiple eight figures a year in revenue. All self-funded. Didn't take on any outside capital, which is pretty rare for a tech company like ours. That's awesome. I want to talk a little bit about the self-funding portion, but let me ask a little bit more about the problem because I have had that problem before, you know, like I'm trying to find someone, people not reliable. And in my street, there's a lot of people that really love their loan. And so if your loan is not perfect, your neighbors are looking at you and I'm all the time trying to find that person. So how do you have the understanding about the problem? It's a huge problem. And but where did your knowledge come from that you knew about that problem to solve? Yeah, you're right. It, you wouldn't think it'd be a pain in the butt to pay somebody to do this chore, but it actually is. It's kind of like trying to book a taxi cab in the rain on New Year's Eve a lot of times. You know, it's like I got money in hand. I just need a ride. But, you know, until Uber came along, that was a big pain point. And so that's the problem we saw for homeowners. And I kind of knew this was going to I knew it was something that needed to be built because the first 15 years of my entrepreneurial journey, I actually ran a landscaping company. I mowed grass for a living. I started a lawn mowing company in high school as a way to make extra cash and stuck with that lawn mowing business all through high school, all through college. And over a 15 year period of time, built up one of the larger landscaping businesses in the state of Tennessee where I live. Got that business over 150 employees, over 10 million a year in revenue. And then in 2013, it was acquired by a national company. And so after that, I took some time off I thought, what am I going to do with my life now? What am I going to dedicate my life to? And I saw what Airbnb and Uber and Lyft and, and a couple of other startups were doing in these kind of real world problems. And I thought, well, somebody's going to build an app that just makes the whole thing, you know, what I spent 15 years doing easier. It might as well be me. 
And it was kind of naivete as an asset. And I recruited two co-founders, didn't know, have any clue on how to build software, didn't have any clue on how to build a marketplace, but we just got in there, started working on it. And the naivete is what got us in the game because it was a lot harder than I, than I thought it was going to be. But we stuck it out and now here we are 10 years in, we got a good solid platform. Awesome. So basically you look at the marketplace, you saw the Uber, the Airbnb, and you match that with your experience of 15 years in that space. So you knew the space pretty well. You knew how hard it was to actually find a good company. That's probably how you grew your company so much because it's very hard. And that kind of like together watching the marketplace with your past experience, it's what put you in the right direction to start this company. Is that correct? Correct assume? That's right. Yeah. Authenticity can be a competitive advantage. And that's what it was for me. Running that landscaping company, I saw the problem every day because people would call my office begging us to come mow their yard. And as that company grew to like 100 plus people, we no longer did those basic residential services, like your basic $40 every two weeks lawn mowing. We didn't do them anymore. And so we would have to tell these people no. And I hated telling people no. So we started referring them to other smaller service providers just as a, like a helpful thing to do. And so in effect, we were kind of this connector service. We were kind of connecting buyers and sellers in like a very traditional analog offline way. And so uh, I thought, well, an app could do all this and set out to build it. That's amazing. So let's talk about how you build it and how you fund it specifically. You kind of touched on that. And I think you went in a very different approach of most companies. Of course, you had an exit, but it's still like it's putting their cash on the line. And like you say, it's a very hard process. People don't realize most SaaS companies never make over a million dollars. It is very hard to get there. It's probably one of the most challenging places to put your money. Yeah, tell us a little bit. How did you fund it? How was the process to build? What did you learn along doing that? Yeah, it was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. But I felt like revenue was the best form of financing for the business because I knew that so long as we had enough revenue coming in to to meet our expenses and, and meet the, the investment we needed to make, that we would never like lose sight of the customer. We would never lose sight of what mattered because we had to make enough money to get to the next month. And while on the one hand, you know, I just sold a business and it was tempting to plow all of that back into the second business, but I didn't want to ever pick up a weed eater ever again. I didn't ever want to like mow another yard in my life <laughs> ever again. So I didn't want to go backwards in life. So I, I locked all of that stuff down in like highly illiquid assets. So I did, really couldn't spend all that money starting Greenpile. So it kind of had to sing for its own supper. And the only money that we put into it was a couple hundred thousand dollars that my co-founders and I pulled together. And this was liquidated 401ks, credit card checks, loans from mom and dad. And we used that to spend, we spent that on a development agency to build the first version of the app, which as it turns out was a total mistake. That was basically a waste. We wasted all that money, but at least it got us in the game and got us something out there in the marketplace that validated the idea. We got a couple hundred people to use that first version. And then, and then after that, we started to learn how to build software ourselves, learn how to code. And for many years, it was just the three of us doing everything, writing the software, designing the software writing the blog posts, doing all of the search engine optimization work, reaching out to journalists to get them to talk about the app, recruiting vendors, customer service, all these things. We were doing it all ourselves for a very, very long time and not taking any salary. My two co-founders worked day jobs and I was essentially retired. I didn't have to work anymore. So it was nice. So I didn't have to draw a salary. I mean, I worked 100 hour weeks growing GreenPal, but didn't take a check. 
didn't take a paycheck, still don't. And so that enabled us to kind of like just knuckle down and get the thing to 10 grand a month in revenue. And after we started getting a little bit of revenue, then my job as the CEO and the founder kind of evolved into one of what's called like a capital allocator. Like a little bit of money comes in and then I figure out how to put that money back to work. And just keep doing that over and over and over again. Eventually it begins to compound, eventually it begins to snowball to where you can pick up some momentum. But in those early days, self-funding the thing, no salaries for like five years and just, you know, making pennies, it was was very challenging. But we just kept focused. We kept working on it. How long did it take to get to that first 10K? I think three years. Yeah, it took three years. Yeah. Three years, everyone working. But it was, I think it's a great feedback for people trying to do. Yeah. I mean, you can't even get a good developer for that. (laughs) You know, this is the entire company. (laughs) So it was really, really tough. (laughs) But the numbers were small, but they were growing. And it was like, we ended our first year with 20 customers. And then we set a goal for our second year to have 100. And in our third year, we had 300. In our fourth year, we had 1,000. In our fifth year, we had like 5,000 or 60. So now we have over 300,000 customers. It kept compounding, but it took a while to get it going. Let's talk about those customers because that's definitely the challenge so many times getting those customers. And I want to go back and touch back about like developing, but you talk about the 10 customers and the second 100 customers, how you got those customers, what was the strategy and what you try, what didn't work? When did you finally find something that worked? Because so many times you also say, hey, this is what I did in work. But people behind the scene, like you say, the 10 years overnight success, don't see other things that we try and didn't work. So could you uh, like expand on that? Yeah, it's like a video game. You know, you just, you got 10 levels of Super Mario Brothers and you just focus on getting one level at a time. And the mistake that a lot of new founders fall, the trap they fall into is they try to like deploy a level eight, nine, 10 strategy on when they're on level one. And what I mean by that is they want to like hands off, like self-serve or, or just kind of like try to do the non hand-to-hand combat thing for levels one, two, and three. And in reality is, is you can't, you can't do that. You can't skip those levels. I have a belief that you should know personally your first hundred customers. They should have your cell phone number. That's how it was for us. We got our first couple hundred customers just passing out flyers, literally like walking around Nashville, Tennessee, passing out door hangers. And that was the the strategy we needed to to deploy at that level because we just needed a hundred customers to figure out if we were on the right track or not and, and what we needed to continue to do to make the product better. And every one of those people had my cell number and that was the strategy we needed to get to level two. Now we have a couple different channels that we get people through, mainly Google organic search. And so as you begin to grow the business, your user acquisition strategy evolves. But in the early days, I think it needs to be as much hand-to-hand combat as possible. One, because that's how you hustle up your first dozen customers, your first 50 customers. But two, you're close to them. You know them. They will tell you everywhere you're letting them down. They will tell you what they wish your product would do that it didn't. They will tell you when they're upset and you need that feedback to even inform how you might go about scaling a user acquisition strategy. So that's how we did it. Very, very, very hand uh, hand cranking manual. And then we evolved into an organic strategy, a Google organic strategy. You touch on a point, which is actually the exact reason why I start this show. So many times people are going to start a company, a SaaS, and they want to do what the successful company is doing today. You need to know what they did when they start in the early days. And that's why you have to do it. 
And that's kind of like why I want to do the show to interview people and ask what they did in the early days. Because if you are starting today, that's what you have to try to do. There's many strategies. We were talking with many different founders, but what you do zero to one is very different than what you do after that. When you have more resources, when you have product market fit. And thank you very much too for bringing that insight. I love what you say. Your first 100 customers should have your phone number. That's a great strategy. <laughs> so you can really get the feedback. Yeah, it's important for those two reasons. You got to hand crank it. You got to get the 100 and you need the feedback. And most of the time, in fact, I don't know, like 99% of the time, this is how the successful companies did it. Uber and from 2008 to 2009 was just like six Lincoln town cars in San Francisco. And then they tried to figure out how they would get their friends to order service for those town cars. And once they figured that out, then they started moving quicker. And But it always starts with like hand cranking the first kind of, I guess you could say uh, prototype of the experience. And Instacart, like those guys went to Kroger and bought one of every single item and took it back to their apartment and photographed it and put it on a website with a price. Like that's what they had to do to hand crank the marketplace. So like most of the time, you'll when you go back to the real like starting days of all these successful stories, that's how they started. And they don't get talked about a lot. And then everybody tries to emulate what they're doing at scale. Exactly. When you have five customers and it just doesn't work. Exactly. Again, that's exactly why I'm doing this show. So you touched on something before that I would like to go back and talk about because it's something that all the time I tell people, most agencies, it is a mistake and you're going to end up failing hard if you try to hire that. And I'm saying that from someone, I own an agency to help people build SaaS products. I have my own SaaS products, but I believe most people shouldn't hire an agency, even mine. So could you go back and tell us a little bit why that was a mistake, how the experience was? Let's dive deeper on that a little bit. Yeah. You know, like where does the agency model fit in developing tech? I think if you have a, a super successful traditional business and tech is not your core competency and you want to streamline pieces of it, maybe let's say you had a laundromat or you had, you had a dry cleaning service and you wanted to make a really slick custom mobile app where people could coordinate the doing business with you and coordinate deliveries or something like that. Then an agency, I think, is a really good move. But it's really hard to like invent a brand new product or experience from scratch and rely on an agency to do it because you're just going to end up rebuilding it over and over and over and over again. And so it's like, unless tech is like inside of the DNA of the company, you don't have developers on staff. It's really hard to do that. But what I would liken it to, it's kind of like, uh, let's say you want to be in the software business and you want to start a brand new technology experience from scratch. It's kind of like starting a five-star restaurant with no chef and nobody on the team has ever even cooked. Nobody's interested in recipes. Nobody knows how to put together a recipe. Nobody even know, Nobody's ever cooked their own dinner. <laughs> but you want to start a, a fine dining restaurant. To me, the way I experienced trying to start a tech company without developers on the team, that's kind of like what it was. It was like, okay, we're in the tech business, but nobody here knows how to code. And it was kind of silly looking backwards. So that's kind of how, you know, because the thing is, the thing we built, the thing we paid to have built, we scrapped it. And then we built another thing, scrap that, built another thing, scrap that, built another thing, scrap. You just had to build it over and over and over again. And it's almost impossible to do that outsourcing. Yeah, you're not aligned. And especially if the team doesn't understand that, like if they have a project mentality, that's the start, that's the finish. Yeah, there's no scope. 
there's no scope. <laughs> That's not how a building a SaaS, creating a product works, you know, and yeah. I like to say software is never done. Never done. One thing I think it's very valuable though, it's getting that consulting approach. So like, what if instead of hiring an agent to build, you hire agents to help you plan, to tell you about what you should think up ahead, to give you a plan that then you can come and present to your developers. So that's where I think it would work. And that's kind of like what we try to do. It's the planning and the strategy. You can bring the expert to help you, but you need to develop that skill. You need to become the product person. You need to, under- right. to understand. And if you don't have the mentality, you think, I just have an idea. I'll pay someone money and my ideas, that's going to fail. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good luck. I, yeah. I think you're right. I think the agency fits in like accelerating what's already working. It's like we have, you know, that maybe the founder is a little bit of a product guy. Maybe there's one or two developers and they've got all they can do. And then it's like, you've got, you've got a little bit of funding maybe. And you've got, you've got this whole roadmap you've laid out. Then you bring on an agency to help you execute that working in tandem with your team. I think that works, but it's like, I've never written a line of code. I don't know how any of this works here. You guys agency handle it and let me know when my idea is done. It never works. It never works that way. It never works. Yeah, you can't source your thinking yep. for sure. And let's then talk about your first hires as you're building your team. You brought your two co-founders. Who else were you building and you believe was like the right people in the early days that help you go to the next level? We already established maybe the agents wasn't the best choice. I'm like, how you went away from the agents and what was like the right people to bring on in the early days? It was kind of like we were building a big brick house and we needed more brick layers. It was me and my co-founder laying all the bricks and what I mean, like writing the code. And we needed more brick layers. Like we needed more developers. We needed more engineers. That was just like, we had all like this huge roadmap and all of these bugs and all of these things that had to be done. And there was only two of us who barely half-assed knew what we were doing, writing buggy code ourselves. We needed more devs, but we weren't making any money. And so it was like this cash 22 And what we did to kind of get over that, believe it or not, back then in 2014, you could make like $75 an hour driving for Uber. And so my co-founder who didn't know how to code was doing PR. That was his job was to get the press to write about us and customer service and driving for Uber. (laughs) And so for every hour he logged on Uber, we could buy like two hours of dev time from a developer in India or Pakistan. And that worked for like two years. So it was, an arbit- it was like a trade-off, an arbitrage that we could do where we could buy dev hours. And that's what we did. And it was really, really challenging. But that was the strategy we had to do at that stage of the game to get to the next level without raising funding because I didn't want to raise funding. And the reason I didn't want to raise funding was because all around me were all of these Uber for like X ideas, Uber for dry cleaning, Uber for home cleaning, Uber for laundry service, Uber for valet parking, Uber for locksmithing, Uber for car washing. There were 10 other Uber for lawn care ideas, apps. And all of them raised like huge amounts of money because everybody was chasing like this this gold rush where Uber was putting up all of these huge numbers. And so then the idea was, well, we can just take this model and apply it to everything in life. And it turns out you can't, not easily anyway. And so all of these things were like, raising five, 10, 20, sometimes as much as a hundred million dollars. And in 18 months they were gone because they were trying to move too quickly and they were trying to apply the Uber model and the VC kind of like blitz scaling model to a dynamic that wasn't ready for it. And looking back, it was kind of like they were putting a rocket fuel in a Toyota Camry and it just, or maybe even a moped 
and it was just blew it apart. And so I didn't want to, didn't want to do that. I didn't want to go down that path. So we had to like grit our teeth and gut it out. And so in the early days, the, the main key hires were just more devs. I was doing all the product. We could do all the customer service. As a matter of fact, we wanted to do all the customer service. We still do. And design, we could do in-house We could and we could outsource. But the main thing we needed help with in the first five years was developers. And so that was the first key, few key hires. Now the team is 47 people. Like a good hire today looks like we just hired a search engine optimization lead where that was like a job that I did in my part-time. And now we have somebody focused just on developing our strategy around SEO. Those are like level up hires now where you can take something that you're doing in like your spare time and like put somebody on it full time. When you see that work, it's a level up. It's like a power up. That's kind of how that's evolved over time. It's a lot of times with hiring at a startup, particularly a bootstrapped one, it's like triage. It's like, okay, what are the two or three things that are bottlenecked that are holding us up? Let's get some help there. Yeah, I might want a head of PR. I might want a head of culture. I might want an HR head. I might want a head of, uh, I don't know, customer experience. But I still have to do those things in my spare time right now. Right now, the main problem in the business is X. So I'm hiring for that. Yeah, for sure. It's all about timing. Like what I'm going to need those people eventually. But like in the stage that I'm right now, who do I need? And I think that going and outsource in cheaper countries, doing the little arbitrage is an amazing strategy for bootstrapper founders. But it's also very hard, very complex. So many people fail trying to do that. So what did you learn? when you went that route and how did you make that successful? As you're bringing developers, there's difference of time zone, there's language barriers, there's trust issues. So how do you make that work? Because that's a skill in itself. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. You know, it sounds easy. You know, oh, just hire somebody, you know, across the world. And for us, the first thing was we had to learn, we had to like build the product ourselves. So and then, and then outsource the things we were doing. So that was step one. So a lot of times people try to outsource something they'd never done. And so there's two types of delegation. It doesn't matter if you're type, trying to outsource or delegating to an employee. There's delegation from stewardship, and then there's delegation by abjuration. And so delegation by abjuration is, I don't know how to do this. I've never done it. Here, you handle it. That usually is a recipe for disaster. Delegation by stewardship is... Here's what we're doing. Here's why we're doing it. Here's how we do it. Here's how we want it done. Here's how long we think it should take. Here's what we think it should cost. Here's how we grade the quality of it. And here's all of the specifications for how we want it done. And here's where we want it backed by. Follow our methodology. That's delegation by stewardship. And so first off, you have to get to a standpoint where you can delegate from a position of stewardship. And don't even try to outsource across the world until you can at least do that, until you can outsource somebody who maybe he's in the same room. Because that's where a lot of international outsourcing goes wrong. It's like, it wouldn't have worked if you had somebody in the same room, much less somebody across the world. So that's step one. And then step two, a really good book about this is actually The 4-Hour Workweek. And, you know, that book's almost like 15 years old at this point. But what Tim Ferriss talks about in that book is, is laying out specifications, laying out a standard operating procedures, laying out something so simple where somebody else can follow it, and then they execute your game plan. And that's, you have to get to a position where you can do that before you can outsource somebody across the world. One reason is because there's, particularly we found this out, we are an app that enables somebody to order a lawn mowing service. Pretty simple. But if you live in Pakistan, <laughs> there is a uh, irrelevant, I guess you could say, contextual perspective they don't have gardeners in Pakistan. I mean, maybe the super wealthy do, but like 
by and large, hiring a lawnmowing service is not something that is done. So it's like you're talking to somebody on Mars almost. And it's like they don't, you know, there's no context. So that's why you, they're great, to, some of the best engineers in the world, but a lot of things get lost in the cultural context. So you have to like distill it down to delegating from a stewardship standpoint down to the task level and leave nothing up for interpretation. And that's where a lot of outsourcing goes wrong. Yes, for sure. I think the way they like to, to phrase that, I think there's project level thinking and task level thinking. If you are outsourcing, if the labor is a little bit cheaper, if they don't understand your culture, you have to do task level thinking. And yep. project level people, they, early days, they should be the founder because project level people, they're expensive and they're hard to find. That's why when you grow your company and you have more money, you're probably going to have a project level person in like HR, or you're going to have that person yeah. in PR and they're going to come and build. But at the early days, you are the project level thinking, you and your co-founders, and you bring that person just for a task. And if you have the right mentality, it's going to work. If you don't, if you think they're going to think about the whole big picture, it's not going to work. But did you know anything about coding before? Did you learn how to code yourself? Because to have that the project level thinking and just give them the task, you have to develop the knowledge of developing softwares. How did you go about that? Yeah, we knew absolutely nothing. We had never built a website, never built an app, never designed a user experience, never coded anything. So we had to teach ourselves all these things. And, you know, the thing that we got from develop outsourcing to a dev shop, at least we got a crappy beta that people could use and it didn't work, but at least they could use it. And we would talk to them and they would tell us everywhere the app sucked. And, but they would never tell us, I don't need this. They would never tell us like, I wish they, in fact, they were disappointed that it didn't work. They were disappointed that they were let down that, that when they pushed a button, somebody didn't show up and mow the yard. And so that was validation for us to invest in ourselves, to learn how to code, learn how to design software. And we just did it through YouTube University. And there's a great website called Envato Tuts that we learned, we used to learn everything from front-end programming to back-end. My co-founder went to a boot camp that was nine months long. That was eight grand that he put on his personal credit card. And so we just took a year and just learned everything we, could, we had to learn. And you, so not only do you have to learn how to write code, but you also have to learn how to do product development. I, shit, I didn't know how to do that. And so it's like, how do you do that? And so what I did was I thought, well, we didn't raise any funding, but all these other companies did. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to learn from them on how they, how they approach these things with a tech product and what they did to make these real life experiences happen. So I wrote down a list of every single local marketplace, peer-to-peer -peer marketplace. And so I used all of them. And I don't mean like I signed up and used them. I mean, I signed up and became a supplier. So I listed a spare bedroom on Airbnb. I drove for Uber. I drove for Lyft. I delivered food for Postmates. I delivered food for DoorDash. I walked dogs on WAG and Rover. I cleaned homes on HomeJoy. I signed up on Angie's List and did every service they could. I signed up for TaskRabbit and went and hung people's flat panel TVs that they had just bought, put their Ikea furniture together. I used all of these services and like I would spend a month on every one of them. And I would just be like insanely rigorous about screenshotting every single interface and taking notes and figuring out, okay, this is how they make sure that the guy shows up on time. And this is what they do when the guy doesn't show up on time. And this is what they do when the homeowner hasn't like logged in and paid. And this is what they do when the homeowner doesn't come back and buy again. And, and I would just take like crazy notes. And by doing that for a year, I became a pretty good product person just by going through this like school of hard knocks. And then I applied all of those things 
collectively between those 12, 15 companies that probably raised $10 billion. And so I was able to like put to work $10 billion of venture capital in terms of discovering excellent product design into my own product just by using and taking notes and reverse engineering what they were doing for similar experiences. So that's kind of how we went from not like layman to half-ass good product people and, and developers. It's amazing. The way that you learn about products, it's by using products and you really took the time to use every single product that was kind of similar to what you were doing to develop that product skill. Looking with different eyes for sure made a difference too. Like now I'm looking with the eyes of a founder of a similar product. What are they doing right? What do I love? They spend all this money in research and they are ahead of me. So they probably know how to go about this. And that's, that's right. probably was the mistake because the people that you hire to build the first version didn't do that. You haven't done that. So the first version wasn't built with the product mentality. But I love also that you guys went and learned how to code. The one thing that sometimes people miss is the 80-20 rule. To actually build something that works, you don't have to know everything about coding. There's a 20% of the things that you can learn that's going to get you the 80% of the result. And the same for the product. What is the 20% thing? that I can do that's going to give me the 80% of the output. And what do you think the 20% was for you when you're talking about like the product and the development skills that you had to develop? What was that 20%? I'm glad you brought up the 80-20 rule because as a founder, you're going to have to be 80-20 good at about 30 different things. <laughs> and so it's like you have to just, whatever stage of the game you're at, you have to get 80-20 good at like sort of like block and tackling at that level. And for us, you know, engineering was a bottleneck. So we had to get 80, 20 good at that, but it just didn't stop there. You know, like I spent six months one time and you maybe year two or three and, and read every book I could read on copywriting because I learned that words on a screen matter and that in user experience and in a user interface, the words is probably the highest place you can deploy expertise and get results. And so I became like an 80, 20 good half-assed copywriter. And so all of these things you got to learn and looking back, it's kind of like one of my favorite video games growing up was Super Mario Kart. And in that video game, you had six different drivers and you had and every driver was had something they were really, really good at. And Princess was like the fastest driver to accelerate off the line. Toad handled the best in those curvy tracks. Bowser had the highest top end and so on. Every one of them had their own skill. And then you had Mario and Mario was like half good at at all the stuff. He wasn't like the best driver in the game, but if you were just getting started, he was the driver you wanted to select because he was like, he was like half-assed good at all these things. And I think when you're starting a company, you got to be like Mario. You got to be pretty good at copywriting. You got to be pretty good at product design. You got to have a keen eye for good design. You got to be pretty good at, at basic accounting and, and strategy and data and data science and maybe content and all these different things you got to be pretty good at. And the, the gold standard for this is probably Elon Musk. I mean, if you think about it, like it doesn't matter if it's Tesla or, or SpaceX or whatever, like Elon Musk can walk on the factory floor and have a conversation with anybody that's working there. Could be somebody who's the battery department and he could talk to them about the science around battery life. And he could probably talk to somebody, uh, you know, a, a rocket scientist at, at SpaceX about how to land the Falcon 5, you know, perfectly like upright, all these things. Like he can go way deep, right? And so- you have to kind of be like Elon Musk in a way where you can do pretty much anything, any function in a company, you can do 80-20 good. And for me, it was like not believing my own BS, putting in the time, learning the stuff and this doing it and getting good enough 
to where then I could hire somebody to do it for me and know if they were doing a good job or not. Yeah, for sure. I think this is an amazing site for founders that are starting. What are the things that I need to become the 80-20 good? And that, again, it's what's going to allow you when you hire someone that's better than you at the job, you know how to make the hire, you know the right questions to ask, and you have a bar. Now, that's right. you have to be better than me because I'm, I'm right. hiring you to do this right. one uh, happy right. job. <laughs> you better right. be better than me at this. But if you don't have the 80-20 skills, you don't know how to make the hire, you're going to keep making mistakes. Yep. Uh, and I think that's kind of like the whole theme of our conversation today. It is go back, go down, uh, learn that, become the 80-20 good at selling and developing a product, HR, SEO, copywriting, and then you can hire other people. But the 80-20 is going to be enough to get you going. It's kind of like where you should be in the early days of building a, a SaaS product. Yeah. And it's, this doesn't get talked about a lot and it should, it should get talked about more. And when you're starting a new business, you're doing three things at once at all times. You're working in the business, you're just making sure the damn thing is running. And then you're working on the business. You're developing the systems, processes, routines. You're trying to make a business, not a job. And then the third thing is, is you're working on yourself. You are reading blogs. You are taking online classes. You are reading books. You are going to YouTube University. You're going to a boot camp, whatever. And the reality is, man, like in the first three, four years, it's a seven day a week thing because there's only so many hours in the week. Maybe Monday through Friday is in the business. Saturday might be on the business. Sunday is your on yourself day. And one thing I liked to do was try to knock out some of these things like at the same time. So as I was coding, I would be listening to a podcast from somebody in product development. Or as I was running in the morning, like I try to run every morning, I would listen to a podcast on product design or something. So anytime I could double dip, that was always fun. But you're doing all three things at once, probably throughout the entire journey of, of being a founder, but definitely in the first three or four years. Yes, for sure. That's amazing. And I think, again, that's amazing feedback here because you don't hear that. You only hear the success story. You only hear about that amazing VP of X that was at the company. You can afford that person. You better yeah. do the 80-20 rule. So that's right. what was like kind of like your biggest fear when you were starting this company? I was never fearful that it wouldn't work because I saw it work in, in analog. I guess my biggest fear was not necessarily imposter syndrome, but I wasn't a tech guy. I spent 15 years running a blue collar business, you know, very much as blue collar as you can get. And so then jumping into the tech world, I was almost feeling like, well, am I really cut out for this? I don't know how to do any of this stuff. All this stuff is foreign to me. But at the same time, it was kind of fun. It was kind of fun learning new things because spending 15 years in the landscaping business, it kind of got dull after year 10. And so that was, that was fun, but that was also scary because it's like, okay, do these people have something that I don't? And am I capable of playing this game? And for the first three years, I really wasn't. But then the big unlock for me was I learned that I could pretty much learn anything I needed to learn if I was willing to sufficiently dedicate myself to it. And that was a cool thing to learn about myself, I guess you could say. Because a lot of times we do things because we have titles. It's like, oh, okay, I'm a product person, so I can do things with product, or I'm an engineer, so I can write code, or I'm a designer, so I design. But the reality is, it's like, you can do anything. You don't have to, you're not relegated to your title. And starting a company will teach you that, that, that you're going to have to do it all. So you're going to have to learn how to do it all. And so in the early days, I was kind of scared if I, was, if I was able to overcome that. But if you just keep working on it and you keep growing the number, no matter how small it is, eventually it does work itself out. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up because that's another thing that so many times we don't talk about. Like, what was our fear? You coming from a different industry, having to learn about tech, 
And I think there's a lot of people in your shoes and it's just like, you can overcome and like it can even become fun and good job what you guys have done. So where you guys are today, you kind of touch, but you guys are pretty big now, right? We're like the world's most unknown, uh, known, unknown, unknown, known. <laughs> you know, it's like if you're looking for a lawn mowing service and your grass is four feet tall, you find us pretty quick. But are we a household name like Instacart, DoorDash, Uber, Postmates? No, not yet. And that's where we got to get to. So we're not, every company goes through kind of three phases. The startup is trying to get an idea off the ground. And then the grow up, which is like maybe zero, 10 employees to 100. And then the scale up. And we're in the grow up phase right now. And we got to keep grinding until we get to, I don't know, million users. And then we become like in that same kind of lexicon of the English language. You know, why would you cut your grass when you can just get a green pal? Why would you go to there? Why would you call a cab when you can just get an Uber? Like we need to be in that same conversation. So that's where we're at. We're not in startup mode and we're not like in nationwide scale yet. So we got to keep grinding. Still day one. But you guys still, I believe you guys passed the hardest part because most companies don't make out of startup mode. Like all those companies, they raise a bunch of money in your space, they crash and died and you guys made it out of there. And now you're going to keep yeah. going into the scale. <laughs> yeah, I read, somebody said the other day, I think it was Mark Andreessen that the best thing for success is success. And if you're making money, it's a lot easier to make more. And that's my job now is like, is one of the capital allocator, you know, we got $30 million in revenue coming in. How do I put that money back to work out there in, in terms of better marketing, better product, better engineering, better data analysis, all these things. And so then it, you know, it's a different game than in the, like in the first few levels. And it, it's, a, I gotta be honest, it's a lot more fun. <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot more fun than it was. I don't want to go back and do. I don't want to go back and play play levels one through three again. They were tough. Yeah, but thank you very much for sharing everything about level one, two, three, because again, that's not shared enough. And I believe we left a lot of insights here for the people that are listening to the show. Before you go, I have just two more questions. The first question, it is what you're like very excited about right now and what you're motivated by. So here's another actual, actually a Mark Andreessen quote. He talks about, so if you don't know who Mark Andreessen is, he's the guy who wrote the first web browser. Like he was on the team that invented a Mozilla and which became Netscape, which was the first web browser. And he talks about going out to Silicon Valley in 1992 and he felt like he missed it. IBM, Apple, Microsoft, they owned the tech world and there was no more room for any more innovation. And, and it was all like they missed it. He felt that. And as it turns out, like how hilarious is that? That was the minute one, second one of minute one of day one. And so if you're in tech, that excites me. You didn't miss it. It always gets bigger. If you think software is, is going to be around 100 years from now, then we're in like year maybe 20 or 30. So it's like we're still very much in the, in the early days. So that excites me a lot. And even in my little world, in my little world of, of lawn care, it's a $90 billion industry. 99.9% .9 of it is still analog. And so that's just like a huge opportunity. And so that's, that's exciting. That's what excites me is that because I'm in the tech world, the possibilities are much more grand than the, my previous life. So that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. And then the other thing is small businesses use our platform to run their livelihood. And, you know, we have 32,000 of them now. And man, they're all the time telling us, you know, thank you, Green Pal. I was able to put a kid through college or I was able to put a down payment on a home or I was push mowing all day and now I was able to buy a $12,000 professional riding mower. And so helping people like achieve their goals through software it's a lot of fun. That excites me too. That's awesome. And I think that's what entrepreneurship is all about. It's about changing people's life, even if in a small scale. Like it's amazing to hear the story of that small business that now 
you improve their quality of life. That's right. That's a lot of fun. And you can keep doing that through software. I agree with you. Software is early days. There's a lot of softwares to be built, a lot of problems to be solved with software, and we can make the world much better through software. And final question, what book are you currently reading or you recommend the founders that every founder should read? Yeah, I'm reading a book right now by a guy named Andrew Chen. It's called The Cold Start. And what this book is about is about marketplaces like ours and how they got their first few customers. And he talks about, like, you wouldn't think about it, like, but an app like ours that connects homeowners and lawn care services, we can actually learn a lot from an app like Tinder. Tinder connects men and women and it's a marketplace. And how they got their first like 100 users is very similar to how we got our first 100 users. And then how they scaled to now, you know, worldwide, you know, hundreds of millions of users. We can learn from that. And so Andrew Chen in, his, in this book, The Cold Start, talks about that. And he, and he does a deep dive on, on dozens of other marketplaces as well. So that's a good book for anybody who's building a marketplace like ours. My point is, is that like never try to learn something from somebody who hasn't done or isn't already doing what it is you're trying to do. And, and Andrew Chin has been a, a practitioner of these sorts of things. And so that's why I'm reading that book. More generalized books that I think everybody should read, doesn't matter what you're doing, is The E-Myth by Michael Gerber. That's a great book about the, just, just the business 101. We talked a lot about delegation and how do you build out a, an organization. One thing about that in The E-Myth is going through the exercise of building out an org chart day one, you know, maybe for like a 50-person company. And it's just you. And it's your name on every role. And then as time goes on, you peel your name off a little bit. And so that's a lot of fun when building a business. So, you know, if I had to recommend one business book about going zero to one, it's probably The E-Myth by Michael Gerber. That book is amazing. I agree with you. You shouldn't be in business if you haven't read that book. (laughs) A couple times. A couple times. And and the audio book, I think, is even better. You can just sit there and just like listen to the audio book three times and then internalize these things. And then you're never at a loss for what it means to be in business. It's such a good basic book. I, I love it. Yeah, I love it too. Yeah, and, and I love what you say about learning from people that are done, but it's also, you can think with a little bit of creativity, like, because it doesn't have to be the exact thing that you were doing. The Tinder example, it's amazing. They're done something similar enough that there's a lot of uh, learning experiences that you can apply on your own marketplace. That's another thing for people to keep in mind. Even though you might be doing something unique, there's a lot of people that done part of what we you have the, you are trying to do and you can learn from them. That's right. And that's, again, an amazing way to look at how to learn. Again, thank you very much for being in the show today, Brian. It's been amazing to, to have you here. If people want to learn more about you, follow you, where they can find you. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Anybody doesn't want to waste time mowing your own yard, just download GreenPal in the App Store or Play Store. Anybody wants to hit me up, Instagram's the best place to find me. Just uh, search Brian M. Clayton and shoot me a DM there and I'll hit you back. Awesome. Again, thank you very much. That was a great show. Thank you. SaaS Origin Stories is brought to you by DevSquad. To find out more about how we help entrepreneurs launch new products and help larger businesses plug in a ready-to-go development team, visit devsquad.com. Add us to your rotation by searching for SaaS Origin Stories in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click follow so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks for listening. And remember, every SaaS hero has an origin story.